Welcome to the DLA Piper Tech Law podcast series. We are delighted for part two of this episode to be joined by Santari Kangas, CTO, and Jeremy Ortiz, General Counsel at Cujo AI. Let us briefly start for the benefit of our listeners with a brief introduction to the DLA Piper's tech, European Tech Index 2020, if you do not mind. So this index is our fifth edition study that explores the perceptions and attitudes of European technology growth. As in previous years, we have spoken to 350 senior business executives across Europe in the fields of technology, financial services, and in the public sector, who work in companies with annual turnovers ranging from 10 million to 10 billion um, euros, or even in excess of 10 billion. Yet again, this has generated some fascinating insights this year, shedding light on general trends, and more specifically, the impacts of COVID-19 on the sectors in question. Data was collected in April and May 2020, during the height of the lockdown in most countries, but also with countries taking part at different stages of their pandemic strategy. Our 2020 report focuses on current important innovations and topics including, as I said, artificial intelligence, robotics, 5G data monetization, acquisition of external businesses, fintech, internet of things, connectivity, cybersecurity, and um, Brexit. When asked um, about uh, potential opportunities in, in the tech law, in the tech index 2020, um, based on, on the responses, cybersecurity was ranked second highest this year for potential business growth. Um, behind only IoT uh, connectivity. So having heard this, can you please elaborate on how product and service offerings um, at Kujo AI help to address these areas for business growth and give your thoughts as how you expect this trend to develop over the coming years? On the accounts that we have deployed, on network service providers that are deploying our services, as I said, they see a significant growth. Yeah, uh, to the extent that we we have a lot of job to do to to scale, and uh, they, they, they've changed that they did they opt in these kind of services. So if you have a subscriber, if you're a subscriber of a bit a bit higher tier internet package, you just opt in. You don't need to pay for it. Yeah, and it's a competitive advantage for those who have these kind of services. Clearly, uh, now operators that and network service providers that don't have these services. Uh, they to take this kind of service live, uh, it takes more than nine months, more than delivering a baby. This is this is harder on on network service provider world because uh, it's, it's a larger project going going across marketing and multiple technical players and get it out and get it in the router and so forth. Has accelerated uh, activities on 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 the. On the side, there's more interest on, on protecting the homes. Uh, but as I said, reacting on a network service provider level to that quickly, uh, the projects just take time. But uh, that's, that's, uh, are, there's more and more, more interest on it. Uh, they are uh, pulling, pulling things forward. Uh, and uh, that's the impact we see. Right. 
That's great. Thanks, uh, Sandri. Uh, getting back to the survey in a, in a minute, um, but we, uh, before doing this, back to, to you, Jeremy, uh, and question more in a general way. Can you tell us the pressing is issues faced by you as the general counsel on a regular basis when navigating through legal and operational challenges, especially in these times of COVID, while meeting the business objectives? in this fast-paced and evolving industry. Uh, thanks, Matthias. Yeah, I guess, I mean, the biggest issue that's come up uh, from the legal perspective over this summer was the Schrems II decision, which kind of right. blew, blew the, uh, the US-EU safe harbor uh, traditional projections out of the, the water, so to speak. So while this has not been, at least from my perspective, a crippling legal it has not been a crippling legal issue it has imposed an extra layer of administrative hassle if you will and a few extra annexes onto every contract which need to now be backfilled uh, as a result of sort of the lack of consistency you know, amongst major markets when it comes to data protection regulation and frankly common practices so in that respect uh responding to business you know we want to make sure that we're there to provide a continuity of service to all of our customers and their end users as well. And we want to work, we need to work to make sure that uh, that things like uh, it, uh, developments or if you could say a breakdown in international data protection and data transportability issues doesn't affect our ability to deliver on our service level commitments or on the consumer's ability to you know, be protected uh, by devices that are uh, that, that are that are secured by Cujo AI products, um, but once again, that's not really so much, in my view, an intellectual issue. It's just a it's a reflection of maybe one might say the overdevelopment of privacy law in the EU versus the radical underdevelopment of such provisions and protections in the U.S. And the fact that uh, with that kind of asymmetry, uh, something's got to give at some point. I think we saw that this summer. So in a way, it's a, uh, well, as an in-house lawyer, I don't get any richer by this, uh, but certainly there are, a, there are countries of lawyers in private practice who are, for whom this sort of disruption on the privacy side and on the data flow, uh, normal flows of data uh, across the Atlantic, uh, you know, there's money to be made for sure. Uh, but if anything, it's more of, in my view, that's more of an administrative issue at the end of the day and not such a, not so much a dramatic change in any specific legal requirement or regime. I think I think one thing is, uh, which which we need to mention about uh, network service providers, they have been uh, kind of leading the plot here. They they have been front runners uh, on compliance standards, and uh, Jeremy talked about six months. Well, CCPA came in before that, like, and we had to immediately apply it across the United States, uh, mm. the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is kind of rather equivalent, not the same, but has a lot of the same aspects that EU GDPR uh, in compliance manner. So the contracts haven't changed at all. The same security compliance requirements are there and they have been there, but it's clear that EU GDPR, and this happened already a few years ago, drove uh, ISO 27001 standard requirements SOC 2 type 2 operation standard utilization uh, requirement and, and lately even pushing us to ISO 9001. 
So the security compliances and the annexes in the contracts have been there for quite some time in, in network service providers, because as I said, they moved first. Now, probably on the other business sectors, uh, companies are bringing them in. I'm probably using the same consulting firms and companies to, to build that questionnaire that looks like a, somebody has read the standard and turned it into questions. And uh, this is the reason why we are, we are standardized in all of the three that I mentioned, uh, so that we don't need to spend so much time on answering hundreds of questions uh, regarding our compliance, our security, how we do things, and because there are standards for this. And the standard for EU GDPR doesn't exist. There's no such thing as ISO XYZ that would be for, for the privacy side. Uh, there are some emerging recommendations, but it would help to great, it would be a great help for companies like us if there would be a clear standard definition that we could apply across the world that everybody would recognize that when you comply to this, then you have done it instead of starting interpreting and, and uh, that's probably a massive business for, for legal counsels and lawyers out there. No, absolutely. I agree. I agree. <laughs> but my ask would be to have a standard around it. So message no, to Switzerland. <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and the, the, the judgment, um, the, the judges lack a little bit of guidance, right? It, there's the decision now and everyone can interpret this, but it's different. I was just thinking, Jeremy, you are well placed as an American lawyer working and have a, a profound knowledge of European culture and be, behavior to bridge this gap which has come up now after uh, the safe harbor provision have been through. So up to you to uh, building the bridge. But let me ask you one other thing, Jeremy. In terms of data processing, uh, how does Kujo AI, and probably it's also for Sundry from a technology perspective, how does Kujo AI's technology collect raw, raw data and, and distinguish legitimate device behavior from malicious or suspicious activities? So how, you, how do you do this? Very spot on question. Um, so first of all, when we deploy our services, we deploy them into operators private cloud. Uh, our service uh, can be considered as operator being the data controller uh, or by UGDPR they are the data controller of all the data. Uh, we are just the processor uh, because we're operating the platform. Uh, like you would have 4G network or your core network, it's typically owned by the operator. They are the uh, controller but somebody else is operating it. This is how our services are. They are part of the core. So that data that flows in our service. So for us to do what we do, we, the system collects uh, information of all connections happening from those devices and all device attributes uh, on, on all, all those connections. Our service doesn't do deep packet inspection, so we are not looking into the payload of the communication, but we, our service knows exactly what is the uh, what is the device communicating to exactly what is the device what operating system version it is running and and, and so forth so a lot of pii data there right uh, a lot of it um, but it stays in the in the system uh, and uh, our algorithms in production need that information to crunch the results 
So we have thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of devices of the same type in our system. So we know exactly how they not behave in the network in a normal condition. And based on this, we create it with algorithms, we create a model profile for the device. And then we are in the real time comparing that model profile to the behavior of that device. When something goes outside of that model profile, we detect it and we cause a model profile alert. Now it, it might be an attacker, it might be a bug in the system, or it might be a new version of the device because it just changed and, and we start learning again uh, that behavior. So, so we detect the abnormal behavior based on knowing the normal in a, in, in a mm, yeah. massive in a massive scale like this it's possible with AI and getting back to the tech um, index results um, one of the clear themes from our survey is this year that artificial intelligence and robotics fall into the categories of efficiency drivers clearly affording greater flexibility and agility and thus leading to a greater competitive edge what is your take on on these findings absolutely agree uh, we couldn't do what we do if we weren't be applying algorithms on the task uh, right. human beings processing the data volumes that we get uh, into our service would be totally impossible doing it purely programmatically uh, would be very static and the world is all the time changing uh, so every time there's a change in IoT device in any application, we also track, track what apps are being used to protect the children and tell the parents what the kids are doing, uh, would be very hard. So the algorithms really kick in there. And AI is all about algorithms at the end. Science that was created already some time ago, but the latest advancements of that have been just very good. In the recent years that uh, they're getting better uh, and they are no way close of, of, of simulating human feelings or anything like that what the science fiction tells but uh, but they are now good enough uh, to make decisions on a on a on a known data set when we know what we are looking for uh, and uh, and we know the features of the data uh, and the data scientists have been able to separate the key features. So uh, it's good enough. And the compute resources, like the whole Moore's law, which increases the uh, economical efficiency of, uh, of compute in, in computers, is, is now on the level that it makes economic sense to de deploy and apply uh, those in, in, in live productions. Uh, so absolutely, in our business, that's that's truly the case. Uh, now, robotics is not specifically. Uh, if you talk about human, uh, if you talk about physical robots, our specificity. But robotics is also software robotics. And uh, I would like robots doing things automatically in an automated manner in software pipelines or cloud services that humans used to do is a key in scaling massive cloud systems, for example. Hearing about, uh, let's say, software robotics and, and, and automation, uh, I, I, we recently, I recently spotted that Kujo AI has, has become a member of the European Telecommunication Standards Institute. 
and um, showing, I guess, your commitment to form part of, of standardization efforts towards harmonization of technology, technological connectivity. How do you expect 5G to impact IoT in the short, medium term future? How, wh what, and, and hearing what Sandri said, what's your view on, on let's say, harmonization efforts in, in terms of automation? Interesting to hear it from the legal perspective. <clears throat> Good question. Uh, I mean, from my perspective, we're really not creating anything specifically new. Uh, words that we've used earlier, like acceleration and focus, I think that's really what we're seeing. There's an increase in volume of data actually that follows on with the introduction of 5G networks. And as we start to harmonize or standardize uh, aspects of industrial cooperation. But at the end of the day, it's still the same companies producing this effectively the same types of software and applying them to many of the same situations. So in that respect, in terms of harmonization, that really is the same, in my view, from a legal perspective, it's the same careful balance of ensuring that you are open enough with your competitors or counterparts in the industry so that there can be a, a groundswell of activity that can lead to something greater than the sum of all of your collective parts while at the same time having to keep the legal the core legal considerations, that is protecting one's organization's proprietary information, uh, trade secrets, and you know family jewels, if you will, uh, from getting out into the public and losing their value. So from that perspective, I don't see that things have really changed so much as uh, from a legal perspective, when you're talking about uh, the, the proliferation of standardization bodies and cooperation platforms, but the role of the lawyer in making sure that you are, how shall I say this? It's a bit like dressing yourself for a cold day. You want to make sure you have enough freedom of mobility so that you can move around, but you still want to make sure you've got all the key areas covered. So you're wearing a hat, mm -hmm. a coat, and boots that keep your uh, that keep your feet dry. And it's the lawyer, I think, who's really the one who, if you will, dresses the company uh, for those sorts of activities. The way you address the kid to go off to school, making sure they can get out the door safely and so they don't come back with a cold, but that they've still, you know that they don't have their shoes tied mm. together and that their hat's not in a, sitting in front of their face. Yeah, so the key reason why we joined Etsy is obviously the 5G core network evolution, which yeah. is not ready yet. So just for the sake of uh, clarity, 5G is broadly used term for, for, it's used for two things. There are two core elements. There's the radioactive network, and you see a phone which has 5G, means that it's in a 5G network. And then there is the core of the mobile network, and that's the 5G core. Uh, that change in the core network uh, hasn't really started happening yet. Um, and that's where we are adapting our services to, so that they would sit in the core network. Because in 5G, the IoT devices connect straight to the network. They, don't connect to home Wi-Fi, they go, all devices have a, an identity, a SIM card embedded on the chipset from the factory. And when they are turned on, they connect to the network. And that's what is happening uh, much slower for, for your home to change and everybody to connect to 5G. It means that you have to throw all the IoT devices you have today to trash can 
and buy new ones, right? Mm. Uh, because because otherwise you will still connect to your Wi-Fi. It means that your Sonos needs to work. Your your all your cameras at home will be having a chip in them and so forth. Now, when that happens, and I think it will take a decade or more before the world's whole IoT fleet of billions and billions of devices are being replaced because there are certain purchasing cycles here. Uh, then the services we provide have to be in the core network. And now 5G core is a software defined network core. It's a cloud. Mm. It, it is a massive cloud where, where the traffic, when it comes to the, in, into that cloud, it can be directed and you can apply all kinds of things to that traffic, including security. And you can redirect it dynamically instead, like in 4G or 3G networks, it's a proprietary, very fixed, it works like a clock, but, but there, are not, there are very few tapping points. Now 5G, the whole design was done differently. So this means that the mobile network centers will be cloudified. That's what it actually means. And it, the paradigms over there, when you design them is like Google, AWS or Azure clouds now just happening in the mobile network core. So software defined network, and that's why we are in Etsy, because we need those tapping points. And that standard is not ready yet, even. Right. Uh, that defines that. Mm -hmm. Understood. Understood. Thank you. Sandri, Jeremy, um, there's one question, uh, or one result in our technology index survey which is interesting about the war of talents. Um, as, the, as before, the, the, our research showed that artificial intelligence solutions can merely be taken out of the box and plugged into an organization to provide instant benefits. So 56% of our respondents saw the level of investment requirement as the main drawback, followed closely again uh, by recognition that there is a skills gap, um, which was indicated by 55% of, of the respondents. So uh, the battle of for key talents will likely to continue as companies seek to expertise to fully adopt and exploit this technology. What's your view on this, on, on lack of talents? Is there a lack of talents? Is it a war of, for talents? Uh, has this been accelerated over COVID? Um, has it always been the case since the early when you studied sanitary um, technology? What's your view? Both. Well, I think for for the star talent, there is always a competition, and uh, and uh, it's, I, th I think it hasn't changed too much in the in the recent years, like the last decade or so. Uh, now, artificial intelligence. If if we break the problem apart. Uh, the core talent is a data scientist uh, who works with the uh, fine-tuning of, of the algorithms and, and, and uh, uh, that uh, pool of people is, is rather small in comparison to, to how much they would, most the world would, would need. But data scientists shouldn't be applied for the whole AI problem. Like if we, if we are building a supervised learning, which means that we have a trained set of information that we are feeding to an algorithm, uh, I think the data scientists do 20% of the end-to-end -end job. Uh, 
there are a lot of analysts, which is a entry level fast to train. If you have an engineering degree or, or even a, if financial analysts, are, we have actually had one which was a financial analyst for this job. People who are analysts, so analyze the data and, and, and push it forward. And so the second part is engineering. Now, engineering schools train AI algorithms. Any engineer coming out of a school should be able to apply AI algorithms on a problem. Uh, a lot of people have taken those free university courses. Helsinki University ran a course, I think it had 100,000 participants all over the world uh, on that. Now, understanding this whole problem domain, leaders of the world have to take the basic course. So they understand what we are talking about. They understand the problem in a way that they can structure the problem. So they, they have the thinking, what could this be applied to? Because, and then they understand when the project is ongoing, what, it, what are they being feeded with the information? Uh, so, so this is a new skill in computer science altogether. And the data scientists have existed for quite some time. Insurance companies have been using them forever, nearly. Uh, well, quite quite some time. And and they are they are that's a specificity of a mathematical science, right? So they are, these are all coming from the maths faculty, right? Not necessarily from computer faculty, the, the hardcore. Mm -hmm. uh, but they are not. We don't need too many of them. Uh, you don't need big number of them when you organize this work pipeline properly. They should just be focusing on that research, everything fed to them, and they can resolve the problem much faster than software engineering can release a product. Mm -hmm. Much, much faster. Mm -hmm. Jeremy, That's, have you visited an artificial intelligence course, or you're at advanced level, I'm sure, already oh, when I, you, I'd when like you to say, joined Kujo? <laughs> I'd like to say that were true, but I'm still very much in the back lines of this battle. Uh, I, I do fear, I mean, obviously, in the legal realm, AI has, uh, how shall I say this? <clears throat> there's been, there's an awful lot of promise for what AI can lend to either contract drafting, contract review or contract formation. But I will say the level of expertise in the legal uh, realms, uh, maybe your experience is different, Matthias, but it's quite low. And uh, really lawyers can't use a, lawyers are, many are incapable of using AI for much less than filling in the address lines in a non-disclosure agreement. And one would argue that's not really AI, but it's there. And to the extent to which the day-to-day -day legal tasks like contract drafting, contract negotiation uh, and execution could become something where the human element element is removed. I, for one, would be happy to see that day. Uh, it's, you know, granted, it is the bread and butter of a lot of legal practices, but, uh, you know, it would be nice to have that, that brain space and that time of day freed up to really chew on legal issues rather than just redraft the same indemnification clause for the five I know Jeremy, what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Santoli. Thank you, Jeremy, uh, once again, for taking the time to come on the podcast. And um, we look forward to following the progress of Kujo AI and maybe catching up with you again sometime in the future. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Matthias. Thank you very much. Happy to be here.